You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Criminal talent broker emerges, developing threats to financial institutions, fishing through PayPal, lessons to be learned from lapses post-flameout, more spear phishing of Ukrainian targets, U.S. Cyber Command releases IOCs obtained from Ukrainian networks, Johannes Ulrich from SANS on the value of keeping technology simple. Our guests are Carla Plummer and Akila Tunsil from the organization Black Girls in Cyber. And not really honor, but... Honor's self-interested first cousin. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 21st, 2022. CyberInt reports the emergence of a new criminal threat group, the Atlas Intelligence Group, also known as the Atlantis Cyber Army. Atlas is unusual in its business model, recruitment of cyber mercenaries to do specific jobs for campaigns known only to the administrators. The group has been operating and growing since May of this year, advertising in telegram markets and its own dedicated telegram accounts. Their customers access their services in an e-commerce store hosted on the Celix platform. A guy who goes by the hacker name Mr. Eagle and presents himself as the group's leader lists Atlas Intelligence Group's services, exclusive data leaks, distributed denial-of-service campaigns for hire, RDP attacks, and initial access. The group suggests in its advertising that it has connections with corrupt law enforcement personnel in Europe, but such claims, of course, are difficult to verify. CyberInt says most of their databases for sale are government-related, while access to RDP clients and web shells that are being sold mostly belong to organizations from the finance, education, and manufacturing industries. The permanent staff includes Mr. Eagle and perhaps four admins. They're engaged fundamentally in outsourcing, acting as recruiters and brokers for the talent that actually delivers the illicit services, rogue pen testers, social engineering specialists, and malware developers. They keep their crews compartmentalized. The actual workers know only about the specific capers they've been hired to pull off. 
Cyberint gives the gang credit for maturity and sophistication. While this may be true in operational terms, as far as self-presentation goes, the diction is the crude, strutting, subliterate stuff one expects from the underworld. The Atlas Intelligence Group has been seen to target countries around the world, including the U.S., Pakistan, Israel, Colombia, and the United Arab Emirates. Cyberint doesn't say who buys from Atlas. Calling them mercenaries suggests that their clientele may be states, but then criminal gangs bring in hired guns as well. And one final note on naming. Atlas Intelligence Group is referred to in some reports as AIG. They are not to be confused with the large and legitimate insurance and financial service company, American International Group, the real AIG. Proofpoint today released a study of the TA-4563 threat group and the evil numb malware it's deployed against financial institutions, mostly in Europe. The group is particularly interested in financial institutions that deal with foreign exchange, cryptocurrency, and decentralized finance. Evil numb itself is a backdoor that, once in place, can be used either for data theft or for staging further malware. Proofpoint concludes... Evil Numb Malware and the TA-4563 group pose a risk to financial organizations. Based on Proofpoint analysis, their malware is under active development. Although Proofpoint did not observe follow-on payloads deployed in identified campaigns, third-party reporting indicates Evil Numb Malware may be leveraged to distribute additional malware, including tools available via the Golden Chickens Malware-as-a-Service TA-4563 has adjusted their attempts to compromise the victims using various methods of delivery. Whilst Proofpoint observed this activity and provided detection updates to thwart this activity, it should be noted that a persistent adversary will continue to adjust their posture in their compromise attempts. Avanon this morning reported that criminals have been seen using a PayPal account to distribute phishing emails. Avanon says, starting in June 2022, our researchers have seen hackers use PayPal to send malicious invoices and request payments. The hackers send the email from PayPal's domain using a free PayPal account that they have signed up for with the email body spoofing brands like Norton. The approach is similar to one seen earlier this summer in which criminals used QuickBooks to send phishing emails. The tactic is attractive because most allow lists view QuickBooks domains as legitimate and pass the email right through. Avanon researchers call the practice of attackers using websites that appear on static allow lists to get in the victim's inbox the static expressway. This same tactic is being used again with PayPal, where criminals have sent out fake invoices that rely on the legitimacy of PayPal to reach inboxes. Reportedly, the attack works because of what is known on the dark web as a double spear. They induce the victim to call a number and pay the invoice, which gives the attackers not only your email, but your phone number, and all too often your money as well. The Lapsus Group, which blazed like a skyrocket last year with its gouty, wild, and opportunistic data theft and doxing extortion scams, has now effectively fizzled out. Some of its script kitty leaders have received police attention, and the group no longer seems to be a player in the underworld. Tenable has published a look at the Lapsus record with a view to seeing what can be learned from the group's career. Lapsus was motivated equally, it seems, by cash and cachet. Specifically, three characteristics can be discerned in the group's history. 
lower maturity tactics and behaviors, priority for clout and notoriety, and a primary focus on monetary goals. The group's career followed the sort of arc one might expect. It began with DDoS and website vandalism, then moved up to data theft. Tenable sums the group's life like this. Characterized by erratic behavior and outlandish demands that cannot be met, at one point the group even accused a target of hacking back, the Lapsus group's tenure at the forefront of the cybersecurity news cycle was chaotic. It's hard to say how much money the Lapsus group has earned from its enterprise, but it cannot be denied that the group gained notoriety for better or worse. Three months since the peak of Lapsus attacks and arrests, the group remains largely inactive. And we hope the script kiddies have been scared straight, no more to break their mother's hearts. Late yesterday, Mandiant released a report on spear phishing campaigns in progress against Ukrainian targets. Two groups, one Russian, the other Belarusian, have been recently active. The Russian-aligned actor UNC2589 uses evacuation-themed emails as its fishbait, as well as notes about wages and compensation. Mandiant notes uncertainty about UNC-2589's provenance, let alone its exact place in Moscow's organization charts. The Belarusian group, UNC-1151, believed to provide technical support for Ghostwriter, uses a proffer of advice on how to shelter while under artillery fire as its fishbait. So the lures, in this case, trade more on fear than anything else. Evacuation and shelter-in-place under shellfire are very high in Ukrainian minds. Staying with some news related to Russia's war against Ukraine, U.S. Cyber Command's National Cyber Mission Force has released a large set of indicators of compromise, 20 in all, obtained from Ukrainian networks. The IOCs are interesting and useful in themselves, but the release also indicates how closely U.S. Cyber Command is working with its counterparts in the security service of Ukraine. The announcement from Fort Meade reads, in part, Our Ukrainian partners are actively sharing malicious activity they find with us to bolster collective cybersecurity, just as we are sharing with them. We continue to have a strong partnership in cybersecurity between our two nations. HP Wolf Security released a report today detailing the evolution of cybercrime. The story it tells is one of commodification and one of the maturation of the C2C markets in general. Stolen credentials can be had, the researchers say in the screamer that opens their press release, for the price of a gallon of gas. The security firm's threat team worked together with Forensic Pathways to investigate the dark web for three months and analyzed over 35 million criminal marketplaces and forum posts. It was found that malware is cheap and accessible, as over three-quarters of malware advertised and 91% of exploits are priced at under $10, with average remote desktop protocol credentials going for 5 bucks. Vendors have been found to sell products in bundles, such as plug-and-play malware kits, tutorials, mentoring services, and the like, which reduce the barrier to entry for inexperienced coders and hackers. The researchers also found that there is a utilitarian sense of honor among cybercriminals— noting that trust and reputation are valued in the cybercriminal underworld. 77% of observed marketplaces require a vendor bond, 85% use escrow payments, and 92% have a third-party dispute resolution service. Cybercrime has also increasingly taken place on popular software, 
with threat actors using gaps and vulnerabilities in software such as the Windows OS, Microsoft Office, content management systems, and web and mail servers. So egoism and altruism can have indistinguishable results, for which the authors of the Federalist Papers wouldn't have been surprised. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The nonprofit organization Black Girls in Cyber was founded in 2020 with the goal of increasing industry awareness and diversity in cybersecurity, privacy, and STEM for women of color. Joining us today to share more about their mission are Carla Plummer and Akila Tunsil. Carla Plummer is an information security engineer at Intel, and Akila Tunsil is a security delivery analyst at Accenture Federal Services. Our conversation starts with Carla Plummer. I think one of the bigger, biggest challenges, you know, from you look at the genesis of everything is even knowing that it is a possibility, right? Um, and, and so past that challenge of when you look at a lot of colleges and, and departments of engineering, there's not the very many women to begin with, and then there's not very many women of color um, from, from that perspective. So that is one of the major challenges. Second major challenge is being able to translate some of your skills that may not necessarily be cyber IT specific, how do you go about translating the skills that you do have that can be an asset to um, the industry to, you know, a hiring manager or a team to, to show that you can provide value, you know? 
and so that that's one of the bigger challenges there. Akila, I'm particularly interested uh, in what Carla says about that awareness issue. I mean, what can you sort of give us some insights when when you're out there spreading the word about this? What, what's the reaction like for the young women that you're speaking to, or the the folks who are looking to you know change their career path? Uh, is it a bit eye opening for them that uh, these these options are out there? Yes, absolutely. I think so. Um, there's thought that you know, cybersecurity or um, anything technology is sort of just out of your reach because you have that notion that this is too difficult to even understand or, you know, you have to have, you know, a ton of uh, experience and and a ton of knowledge that you just never heard of. So, you know, learning a new language and trying to, I guess, connect that to real life situations, like how can I have a career in this? You know, um, I think that's the kind of consensus because we're just not exposed to it. So, I mean, you only understand what you, what you know, what you've been exposed to. Right. So I think, I think that the stigma behind encouraging young women, especially young women of color. And in general, I don't think that technology has been, it's just becoming, you know, uh, I guess mainstream in the sense that we think about traditional careers, paths and so forth. Like people from my generation, like, you know, I'm from the eighties, you know, I was born in the eighties. So, you know, we only thought about uh, being a teacher, a doctor, lawyer, or something like that, right? You weren't really mm. thinking about technology as a career path. Like, what do you do in that, you know? <laughs> and because it's so vague, I think that there's lots of different ways to interpret what is cyber, like what kind of career is that, you know? Uh, there's just so many different things you can do in the field that uh, it kind of makes it hard to grasp what can I do in this field. I think one of the challenges, sorry, not to cut you off, but just to piggyback on something that Akilah said is a lot of people believe that every role within cyber is uber technical, right? Everyone, even now, you know, I try to explain to my mom or my my family what I do and they're like, oh, you're a hacker. No, that's not (laughs) what I do do exactly and so you know what society portrays um versus what the message we're trying to spread sometimes it is contradictory because like Akilah said you you only know what you know and if you're getting most of your information from the mainstream media and, and not diving yourself into the industry really that you don't really get to understand that yeah there are a lot of technical roles, sure, but there are also so many non-technical roles that play a part in developing a cyber strategy as a whole. And what exactly does your outreach look like? How are you out there spreading the word about this? So we do lots of, we're on every social media platform. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and that comes through most of our um, marketing campaign, um, our events team holds 
I can't even count how many number of events. They do lots of day in the life series so that to give people an understanding and a little insight into different careers and things like that. Those events are generally open to the public, free to join the, the Zoom webinar to ask questions and things of that nature. So that is mostly how we spread. From there, you know, we have our um, fellowship, which Akila and I um, serve as the co-directors over the cybersecurity curriculum. We offer volunteer, you know, other people, even if you're not cybersecurity professional, but want to volunteer to help us out and, and learn from that perspective, those opportunities are out there and available. Don't get stuck on the title of a position and things like that. Just continue to move forward um, and feel free to reach out to us. I mean, we have lots of free resources um, that we can steer you toward to help you, help you, you know, in your journey. That's Carla Plummer and Akila Tunsil from Black Girls in Cyber. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to welcome you back. You know, you and I, uh, we both spend a little bit of time over on Twitter. And something that I see happen a lot is that uh, some innocent uh, user will post something about how they did this, that, or the other. They, I don't know. They used a QR code or something like that. And, and in come all of the uh, information security professionals rolling their eyes and <laughs> saying, oh, don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. And then typically there's some back and forth that, you know, not everyone's security situation is the same. Is there something to be said here for just sort of keeping things simple? Yeah, keeping things simple. Also, keep the user in mind and uh, keep in mind what you're protecting. Kind of keep security reasonable with respect to what you're protecting. Mm. I always tell this story from the guard in, in the dog park I used to go to. And seventy um, something years old, makes twelve dollars an hour, and uh, the apartment complex. He lives in, well, he used to pay by check, as you're doing here in the U.S., uh, his rent every month, until the management company decided he has to do a bank transfer now, uh, which he hasn't really done before. So his solution to the problem was to give uh, the manager the username and password for his online banking account so they can set it up for him. Mm. Um, <laughs> 
worked okay in this case. You say, okay, it's terribly insecure it is. I, I don't recommend you do that. But actually, in this case, it was in some ways uh, better than getting evicted. <laughs> so, right, right. And uh, I always see QR codes a little bit somewhere. You know, um, what's a threat that you're protecting the user from? A QR code is a very simple way to get users to visit the correct website. Uh, it works with mobile devices, which... Now is, uh, for the most part, default a computing device for a lot of people. These same devices have impossible to use keyboards uh, for the most part. And uh, the threat here that's often described is, hey, but you don't know where you are ending up. So someone could redirecting you to a malware site, to a phishing site, or whatnot else. Well, what's the alternative? A short code? Well, doesn't really provide any kind of uh, protection here uh, as far as being redirected to a bad site or mm -hmm. even worse, uh, let the user type a real long weird URL on a mobile keyboard. Uh, they're probably going to put a typo in there and then you have typo squatting domains. So in many ways, uh, by not using QR code, you may actually hurt the business purpose here, but uh, you're not really adding a lot of security. I think there are a lot of things like this where some of the sort of security establishment mafia kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> is going overboard and right, uh, right. trying to do things, <laughs> trying to secure things that really, in the, in the end, you have to remember that the goal of security is to stay in business. Well, also, I think it, it comes up pretty regularly, practically a cliche, where you'll see some elderly person has a notebook full of all of their passwords and, and yep. you know, they, they get criticized for that. But I mean, it seems like a perfectly reasonable use case for me. There, there, chances are there aren't, you know, bands of, uh, of people trying to break into that person's apartment on the lookout for password uh, <laughs> books, right? Another example that I always use, like, uh, I have, what's it, C-Wave uh, door lock. And people mm. always say, hey, you know, um, that's terribly insecure. I tell people, please, if you're breaking into my house, please hack my door lock because I'm living in an old historic house and the top half of the door is actually an old window glass pane. If you smash that with a brick and I need to replace it, it's a lot more money than breaking or hacking the uh, the door lock. So again, you know, uh, I don't see a lot of... Uh, burglars walking around with Bluetooth hacking kits. Uh, usually I see them walking around with a brick and not with... <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> right, wearing a mask and a black and white striped shirt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the take-homes for me is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Yes, that's very important with security, and I see this getting so often away where someone says, hey, there's a more a billion security feature X, it can be bypassed. Does it take more work to bypass than it takes to implement a security feature? Yeah. All right. Well, Johannes Elric, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, 
and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.